0: Hey folks, Brian here. I just want to thank you guys for listening and also contributing to the show in your various ways, whether it be through emails or likes and follows or reviews or in some cases uh, monetary donations. I want to thank each and every one of you. You guys are the inspiration for me keeping this going. So let's keep right on rolling into 2021. Later. This is episode number 34 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. First of all, I want to wish everybody a Happy New Year, and I hope that your Christmas was good. Uh, Things were okay here. I've basically been resting uh, when I've had time off from work, uh, because the last couple of weeks have been pretty crazy, so usually it takes me like a day to sort of recharge the batteries, if you will. Uh, Let's see... Uh, Gaming-wise, I'm still doing the usual things. I'm playing uh, Elite Dangerous. I got back into it thanks to um, one of the people I follow on Twitch. He goes by the name of Buana. He is a streamer. He's been one of the original streamers back before when Twitch was uh, Justin.TV back in the day. And he's been streaming for how long? What, 14 years or something like that? Some ridiculous amount of time. But, um... yeah so i follow him i donate to his stream uh i got to see a nice holiday stream with him and his wife where his regular uh donators you know basically gave him quite a bit of money and did a whole bunch of donation things as well and a lot of subs uh were purchased and also um new subscribers to the his channel and everything else so yeah it was a pretty good time um, New Year, same thing. I've just been relaxing, playing my games. I've um, basically got a rotation of Star Trek Online and Elite Dangerous right now. Um, I haven't been doing too much else because nothing else is really grabbing my fancy. Um, let's see. I think, what was it? I think the 30th, uh, both Pinball Pete's and the arcade in Brighton, put up notices on uh, Facebook about they were reopening so they probably have gone back to regular hours. Um, The prior week uh, Pinball Pete's was asking for donations to keep everything running uh, because you know with COVID doing what it's been doing and our governor uh, shutting the state down Not to the extent like over the spring and summer of this past year, but enough to where the small businesses really are feeling the pinch now. Um, They went and they asked for donations and so forth. Um, If I wasn't in a bit of a financial situation right now where I'm trying to get a car and I'm about to change jobs, I was thinking about doing a donation but I couldn't really justify it. Um, I'm waiting for the stimulus check that's what's going to probably get me to uh, put down a down payment on a car and possibly the insurance and all that kind of stuff so right now I'm in a holding pattern financially. Uh, The good thing is is that yeah I'm about to change jobs by the time you hear this I've already probably started the process with the job I'm working at putting in my notice and all that kind of stuff so we'll see what happens from there. Uh, I do have plans on going up to the arcade in Brighton as soon as I'm able to uh, probably after I get a new job or excuse me get a new car and uh, you know get everything on routine and get a nice routine going with the new job that I'm going to have so as always stay tuned. I still have full plans this summer on going to Chicago, uh, once things have settled down in the case of the pandemic, which probably won't happen in, I would say, probably late spring at the earliest. It's probably going to be through the summer, but I'm trying to be optimistic about it. Um, As a matter of fact, with my new job, I was told that the vaccine will be made available but uh it's optional at this point i w- pretty much am going to figure that it's going to be mandatory um probably a few months from now once the all the kinks are worked out with uh, the vaccines and whatnot there are two vaccines now there's a third one coming i think there's another one or two behind that so i think by uh, early spring to mid spring going into summer i think as a nation we will be in much better shape okay but enough of that uh, let's see i do have an email i opened up my email account uh, about 15 minutes ago and i saw we had one and i'm glad that i have one because it's the first one i've had in a while and it is of course from the regular contributor to this show by the name of mike stewart and he says Hey, Brian, me again. Uh, Just listened to episode 32 and noticed your comments on the Coleco. I got a Coleco console around 1983 or so for Christmas, and as I've said before, it was the Donkey Kong graphics that caught me. Yeah, Mike, it was a lot of people that saw that game, and they immediately went and bought it. Like I said in episode 32, um, I wish that I had gone ahead and asked my mother to get me a ColecoVision, but I was faithful to Atari, and my (laughs) my faith in Atari cost me. But anyway, uh, to continue. Though another point in its favor was the Atari module sold separately to play 2600 cartridges. The Atom computer was ostensibly another reason, but that was left behind as an option when I got my Commodore 64. Yeah. (laughs) The Atom had promise, but then... It went right down the tubes. I think the failure of the Atom along with the crash in 1983 really is what seriously did the, the uh, ColecoVision in, and that's just too bad. Uh, to continue, uh, though I will state that the ColecoV- the ColecoVision joysticks were pretty lame. This was due more to their shape than their reliability, Under unlike the Atari 5200s. Yeah, tell me about it, Mike. <laughs> yeah, the reliability of 5200 joysticks was pretty bad i'm trying to remember i think i replaced i think i replaced two or three joysticks through the years that i had my 5200 because buttons wouldn't work or the joystick would just fail so yeah i get it uh, however, the Coleco did allow for the use of regular Atari joysticks as well as third-party ones. Weird that the 5200 didn't follow suit for their own product. Yeah, it was weird, I agree with you. Um, To continue, anyway, keep up the good work, Mike. P.S. I recently bought my wife one of those joysticks that have RCA plugs for the TV and comes with dozens of built-in Atari games from back in the day. She hasn't played it, but I was wondering if you you had any opinions about the games and their quality vis-a-vis original 2600 versions. Um, I haven't used those things personally, but I remember seeing them in GameStop and, you know, on sale in, like, Target and Walmart and Meyer and, you know, stores like that. And I was always wondered what if they were any good. Um, they actually use screenshots. I think they're actually okay, but I think the better bet is to actually just plunk down money for an Atari Flashback at this point. Um, I think they're up to Flashback 9, and I think the number of games is, like... What, 130 or thereabouts, including prototypes that never got released? So that's just my opinion. I keep wanting to pull the trigger and buy one, but I just can't make myself do it. Usually there's a bill to be paid, or uh, my son needs clothes, or something along those lines, and you know, I just can't justify spending the money on myself. But, yeah, anyway, thank you very much for your email, Mike. Keep them coming. <laughs> and, like Mike, if you wanted to uh, email the show, you could uh, email me at arcadeaddictbrian@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Questions, comments, games you want me to cover, games that you remember, games that you pseudo-remember but just can't remember the name of them, I'll do what I can to help you. Whatever it is, I'm here. Um, also, there is a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, uh, social media is moving right along and up and running. Uh, on Facebook, all you have to do is search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. There is a uh, discussion group that goes along with that. Uh, also, on Twitter, I am at arcadeaddict_b. underscore B. On Instagram, I am at Brian and Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So once again, multiple ways of getting hold of the show. Let your fingers do the walking, let your voice do the speaking, and we'll make it work from there. Alrighty then, so with all of that out of the way, let's get on with the show. I've got quite a bit to talk about, and it's already late, and I'm trying to keep my voice going. So let's get right into it. Top 10s. Top 10s, ColecoVision games. <laughs> hey Mike, Christmas came a little late for you, but here you go. <laughs> okay, Um. by comparison to the twenty six two hundred and 5200 top 10s, this was easy. Um. Even though I didn't own a ColecoVision personally, I played a lot of games on it. Especially uh, when I was able to... Uh, go to the video connection and use them as a resource and stuff like that um i've already told the story i think in what episode 10 uh episode 9 or episode 10 um yeah go back in the archive and it'll be there (laughs) i told that story um my cousin got colecovision in 1983 i think uh so every time that i went over his house which was I'd say probably about once or twice a month because um, like I said, my mom and his mom were best friends. So they were really close friends. So, you know, he was a surrogate cousin. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we would have, the kids would have sleepovers and the adults would, you know, uh, be upstairs and, you know, doing all the adult things, you know, drinking, smoking, playing cards you know, talking all kinds of crap about a bunch of things, that kind of stuff, and we would be downstairs in the den of his house, which actually faced out onto Lake Forest, which was a, re- it was actually a really nice house, and, yeah, you know, we would all just stay up late and play games and, you know, do all that kind of stuff, listen to music and, you know, that kind of thing. It was fun. Those little, those sleepovers were really cool, but, uh, yeah, it, when he got a vision, yeah, I was all about it and I would constantly if he if he wasn't playing it and I was you know playing along with him I was constantly asking and to, asking to play his kalika vision because yeah I loved the Donkey Kong thing so yeah let's get on to the top tens once again no particular order um I just put them in order as they came to me and I you know gave a little bit of a description of each one and what I felt about it so here we go <laughs> we might as well start off with the killer app Donkey Kong Um, Like I said, when I talked about the ColecoVision uh, in home systems, this was the killer app, and it's what helped launch the ColecoVision and put it on the map as a serious contender. Uh, It already had better graphics than the the Intellivision, never mind the Atari 2600. The 5200 was more of a competitor, but ColecoVision already had uh, their hooks in the video gaming market by the time the 5200 came out. Um, Donkey Kong was fun and very close to the arcade aside from one big difference one of the levels was was missing and I loved playing the game immensely and anytime um, I went to the Video Connection and I'd play either that or a couple of the other games I'm about to talk about but yeah, I always liked playing Donkey Kong it was so much like the arcade you know, maybe a half step down from the arcade and it would be closer if it wasn't missing one of the levels, but it is what it was what it was, you know. But still, it was fun to play. Uh, Gateway to Apshai. Uh, this is one of the first action RPGs I ever played. As a matter of fact, I think it's one of the very first action RPGs ever made for a home system. I mean, you could yeah, you could call Adventure for the 2600 an action RPG, I guess, but no. I mean, this had statistics you know and you know different things um along with Treasure of Tarmin for the Intellivision this was my favorite game to play at the video connection um but while Treasure of Tarmin was more of a traditional D&D game Gateway was all action you were a warrior with basic armor weapon and uh, shield and you wandered around dungeon levels encountering monsters and traps and finding treasure to increase your score um better armor, better weapons, magic armor, magic weapons, spells on scrolls, and things like that. The game was fun, but it certainly wasn't easy, especially once you got down to levels where the dreaded Black Mamba was, (laughs) which was basically a gray snake that, you know, moved extremely fast, and if you didn't have the weapons to damage it and the armor to survive its attacks you you were you were toast <laughs> you know that's just what it was and i mean i recently saw a video on uh youtube uh, about a guy who was basically trying to set a, some sort of record with uh gateway to Apshai, and he was going through it and you know he knew what uh what items were trapped, where most of the traps were, you know, what? how to deal with certain, you know, certain monsters and so forth. You know, lots of fun. A, a wonderful game. You know, severely underrated as a matter of fact. One of the best action RPGs to ever be produced by anybody. And that's just how I feel. Uh, Mr. Do. Now, I gushed about Mr. Do in a previous episode, you know, the arcade version, and this was... Again, a half step behind the arcade as far as, you know, how the game looked, how the game played, you know, it it was great. It was fantastic. When this came out, I was constantly asking to play this at uh, the Video Connection. Um, I'm Like I said, I'm a massive fan of Mr. Do. I much prefer it over Dig Dug, and I was pleasantly surprised to see this game it was an excellent translation, and it is. Okay, pit stop. Um, this game, you know, this is where I first encountered pit stop. I mean, I would get much more into the game when I got it from my Commodore sixty four, but this is where I first got it. Um, this was a great racing game, and to my knowledge, the first game where you actually had to use uh, strategy, tire management. Um, you had to drive a certain way to, you know, manage your tires so they didn't break down, so the tires didn't blow up on you and end your race, and then when you got into the, you would, when your tires were, uh, worn down, I think it would go from, like, blue to yellow to red, when your tires were red, they were, you were running the risk of having a blowout, so you would have to go into the pit stop, and of course you had to, uh, do fuel management as well, because you were running, it was like, It was just like a Formula One race in a way, but you know, with 1982 ColecoVision graphics, it was great. Um, As you put in laps on the track, your fuel would run low and your tires would degrade and you'd run the risk of a blowout, like I said, which might just end your race. If you were lucky enough to have a blowout near where the pit stop was, you could actually limp your car into the pit stop and actually change your tires and stay in the race. Uh, The trick in this game was to build up enough of a lead so you wouldn't lose your place in the race after your pit stop. You know, which, you know, that was the goal. You had to win that race, and I think they had like a Grand Prix mode where where you'd run multiple races. But yeah, I mean, each track you ran, it was a different strategy as far as fuel and tires went. I mean, this game was sneaky complicated. It really was, but it was fun. Uh, Time Pilot. Um, this is another great adaptation of an arcade classic. I mean, it wasn't 100% perfect, but, you know, like I said, another uh, half step behind where the arcade was. Of course it wasn't as smooth as the arcade, but, you know, it was still good enough. It was still a great game to play if you had a of Vision. Uh Let's see. BC's Quest for Tires. <laughs> yeah, this, was a, this is a, a quirky game. Uh, the game, of course, is based off the popular comic comic strip in the 70s and 80s. Um, it was a fun game to play, but it didn't catch my interest for very long. Um, you had to figure out a way to get to uh, to save your girlfriend. I forget who, what the main character's name is. I think his name was actually BC. Um, but yeah, you had to figure out a way to get through various uh, obstacles and things like that. And of course, you know, you're the thing I remember most about it is that you you were running on the Caveman's version of a unicycle which was basically uh, a wooden, or excuse me, a stone wheel with a wooden stick in the middle of it and you just ride it like it was a, you know, a unicycle <laughs> but yeah, I remember that game. Uh, let's see, Turbo um, this is another great translation, I think this is maybe like a quarter step behind the arcade um, This game came with a steering wheel and a pedal to further enhance the experience, which I thought was awesome. I mean, it drove the cost of the game up, but it was still pretty cool to use. Never mind, you had to use, like, oh god, what was it? Like, six uh, C batteries for the uh, steering wheel and the gas pedal so it would work, so you'd burn through batteries all the time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I played it a lot at the... uh, at the, uh, video connection, but, you know, it was, uh, it was such an annoyance to kind of get to hook up to the system that, you know, if I even tried to ask for it past a certain time, when I'd sort of worn out my welcome, they would just look at me and say no. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, like I said, about as close to the arcade game as Kalika Vision could get. Like I said, maybe a quarter step behind the arcade. Um, let's see, Venture. Um the funny part about this game, I played this game before I actually played the arcade game at Wizard's Arcade in early nineteen eighty two before that arcade burned down. Um It was really it was interesting because it was kind of like playing D and D, but you know, it was an action ver- action uh version of D. It was interesting but it got really hard really quick that's what i remember most about it um let's see war games oh this game even though it took from it took the name from the classic movie which came out in what 83 um but this game was great it wasn't a pure translation of what happened in the movie but it was more of a Uh, video game graphical representation of the global thermonuclear war game that uh, Matthew Broderick was, you know, just (laughs) turned everything on its ear trying to play. Um, You use ICBMs, submarines, bombers, and killer satellites to intercept incoming uh, missiles and aircraft and I think other submarines before they can launch their bombs or their missiles and destroy cities it was complex it was really complex to do to play especially when you got to the uh, higher or you used uh... excuse me you played on a higher difficulty but yeah once you got the hang of it it was a lot of fun uh... and uh... donkey kong jr Um, as i said before i wasn't a massive fan of this sequel to donkey kong but i mention it here because i do remember playing it a few times especially at the video connection You know, it was well done, I'd say once again, probably like a half step behind the arcade version, but uh, it wasn't really my cup of tea. I never really liked Donkey Kong Jr., (laughs) which is kind of funny because I played Donkey Kong 3 more than I played Jr., which is weird. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, but yeah, graphically it was right on a par with the arcade game, I mean, not as, of course, not as... uh, detailed as the arcade game was, but it still was a really good translation. You know, that was the one good thing about the ColecoVision is that they had excellent, and I mean excellent, arcade translations. Uh, Let's see, Honorable Mentions. Uh, Let's go down the list. Uh, Cosmic Adventure, Looping, Buck Rogers' Planet of Zoom, Frenzy. Oh, God, Frenzy was a lot of fun. I mean, just one of the best translations they ever did um ladybug Cubert, smurf rescue and gargamel's castle i distinct i put it here because um i remember reading in electronic games monthly that there was a trick to actually beating the smurf game without having to go through everything <laughs> and i actually pulled it off one day so i just place it there for that and of course ubiquitous zaxon and that is like i said another excellent arcade translation uh, so yeah those are my top tens um if you owned a ColecoVision back in the day mike i know you're listening i know you've got some things to say about this list um you know by all means get a hold of me arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com all right so with that done let's move on to are you experienced I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to the chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we are getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this You will it. We're not too old for this shit. No, we're not too old for this shit. Like we're not too old for I'm this like you believe We're not too old for this not shit. not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cut. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Star Castle. <laughs> oh man, this game. Uh, when I've rediscovered this game at uh, the arcade in Brighton, it brought back so many memories from 1979. It, it's, It almost doesn't even bear description. Um, so, yeah, let's get right to it with some information from Wikipedia. Star Castle is a vector graphics multi-directional shooter released in arcades by Cinematronics in 1980. Now, I could have sworn it was 79, but okay, I'm not going to quibble. Um... The game involves obliterating a series of defenses orbiting a stationary turret in the center of the screen. The display is black and white with the colors of the rings and screen provided provided by a transparent plastic screen overlay. (laughs) Yeah, that's a holdover from like the, oh goodness, like the mid-70s right there. Uh, A lot of video games uh, from that era had plastic screen overlays to simulate color. Uh, Let's see. Star Castle was designed by Tim Skelly and was programmed by Scott Bowden. Uh, Skelly created a number of other Cinematronics vector games, including Starhawk. Oh, I'm not even going to get into Starhawk because, <laughs> yeah, I have so many m- memories of that game. Um, Armor, Attack, and Rip Off. Uh, a Vectrix Pointer Star Castle was released uh, in 1983. The object of Star Castle is to, to destroy an enemy cannon which sits in the center of three concentric rotating energy shield rings while avoiding and destroying mines. Enemies that spawn from the core pass through the energy rings then home in on the player's ship. The player-controlled spaceship can rotate, thrust forward, and fire small projectiles. The cannon shields are composed of 12 sections each, and each section takes two hits to destroy. Once a section is breached, the rings beneath it are exposed to fire. Once the innermost ring has been breached, the central weapon is vulnerable to attack from the player. However, the player is also more vulnerable at this point, as with the shield rings eliminated, the gun can fire out a large projectile that hisses with white noise. Moreover, the central core tracks player movement at all times. If the player manages to hit the cannon, it explodes violently, collapsing the remnants of the shield rings, and the player is awarded with an extra ship. The next level starts with a new gun and fully restored shield rings, with the difficulty increased. The mines move faster, the rings rotate more quickly, and the core attracts the player faster. If the player completely destroys the outermost shield ring, the cannon will create a new one. The middle ring expands to replace the lost outer ring, and the inner ring replaces the middle, and a new ring emerges from the core to become the inner ring. Therefore, in order to penetrate the can's defenses, the player must be careful not to completely obliterate the outer ring. Three homing mines will destroy your player's ship on contact. The mines can be destroyed, but they are very small and difficult to fire on, and the player does not receive any points for destroying them. Mines are revived when shield rings regenerate. Some variants keep three mines churning constantly so that a new mine respawns from the core as soon as one is destroyed. As the player progresses through the levels, the minds get faster and faster, forcing the player to keep moving to avoid them. Oh, yeah, ain't that the truth. More on that later. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, the Legacy. Uh, the development of the game was chronicled in an issue of the ma- the magazine Science 80. I barely remember. I think I read something on that. I think I read that. You know, thank God for Walden Books and the Book Beast, because, yeah, you could, re- you could read magazines and stuff. Uh, Let's see, Atari programmer Howard Scott Warshaw investigated writing a clone of Star Castle for the Atari 2600, but didn't see the game as a good match for the system technically. He reconfigured the concept into Yard's Revenge, which became Atari's top-selling original game for the 2600. How about that? (laughs) A hobbyist written of Star Castle for the 2600 was eventually released in 2012. Hmm, interesting, I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, let's see. Jim Nichols of Cavalier Computer wrote a clone for the Apple II called Ring Raiders, referenced in-game as Raiders of the Lost Ring, in 1981. Anthony Weber of StedX Software wrote a clone for the Atari 8-bit family called Star Island. Uh, in 1986, in the movie Maximum Overdrive, a Star Castle machine electrocutes a person in the arcade. <laughs> I like that. That's pretty funny. Okay, uh, my thoughts on it. Uh, this game got a lot of attention in Trumbull Mall Arcade and that's the only place I ever saw it back in the day. The sounds of this game uh, the sounds that they ma- it made were thrilling and were a little bit intimidating too. Uh, the regulars fell on it almost immediately and there's some f- fierce competition for the high score because there was only one high score <laughs> for it and you didn't even have you, you couldn't even put your initials up but you know I digress. Um, it was a fun game that got very challenging pretty quickly. And when I saw this game in, in the arcade in Brighton for the first time, all those memories came flying back, just like I said at the top of this segment. Um, yeah, you know, and one of my one of the best games that came to that arcade in that in that year in 1979, 1980. Okay, so with that said, let's move right on to time for some strategy. some strategy i talked to somebody on facebook a couple of months ago and he said to me that he preferred omega race to star castle because he could make his money last longer that completely blew my mind because omega race was one of those games in the early 80s that could cost you a lot of money if you sucked at it and it could be horrifically cheesy to boot and yes it was there's a reason why i haven't talked much about omega race Aside from an honorable mention in my top tens for what, 19, 1980, 1981, right in there. Um, because it was one of those games that, yeah, it could be really cheesy. Yeah, and it really, really was. I mean, the anticipation this game had was almost preternatural. But I digress. Um, I asked this guy a couple of questions, and he told me that he would just, when he played Star Castle, he'd just sit in the corner. And just try to destroy the cannon from there. To which I nodded in understanding, because that's the exact wrong way to play this game. (laughs) That's just the truth. Okay, getting on to uh, my little little strategy guide here. Uh, For at least the first five or six levels, Star Castle is a game that rewards aggressive playing. On the first screen, you blast all but one tile of the outer ring and do the same for the middle ring and try not to blast the inner ring. From there, use the back and forth wraparound method to blast the inner ring and avoid getting shot down by the cannon once the inner ring has been breached. Uh, The back and forth method is flying your ship back and forth at full speed, either horizontally or vertically. Wrapping around the screen is firing as you approach the cannon, bounce off the walls, then fly in the opposite direction to attack from the other side. Um, for a while at least, this keeps you from getting zeroed in on by the cannon and also shakes the drones off your tail for a few seconds, at least until they move so fast that they match your ship's speed at full thrust. After a little bit of YouTube searching, I saw a video where someone posted a score of over 49,000 points, which is really, really impressive. Use the vertical back and forth method for the first six screens or so, but then switch to a diagonal flying method once the drones matched his ship in speed. He would do diagonal flybys of the castle, cutting thrust for a second just long enough to turn the ship and fire on the castle and passant, then turn back and fly at full thrust to do it again when he passed the castle on the bottom, and so on. This served two purposes. It kept the drones on the screen to a minimum, because if a drone touches the castle, it goes back on the walls for a few seconds, and his skill was so good that he would fire on the castle only when the inner walls were exposed, and staying at or near full thrust enabled him to avoid most collisions with the drones, except for the head-on collisions, which could not be avoided. As an aside, I will say that he must have been using an auto-fire, because his volley of four shots were just a little too perfect, and he was playing using an emulator. Uh, Most of the lives he lost were kind of unavoidable, and he put up a really impressive score. And um, I was really impressed by that you know it was one of those things where it's like why didn't i think of this <laughs> because it was just a really interesting uh way to play the game and he really put up a really good score i can only average about what 20 22 23000 uh on average um if I am get any higher score than that, say 25,000 and up, I'm having a really good game and things are just breaking my way because I didn't know about this diagonal flying method until I saw it. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, <laughs> I could be doing a whole lot better at this game. Um, every time I played Star Castle at the Arcade in Brighton, um, I, won't, I won't lie. I would do it because somebody put up a really weak score on it. <laughs> I remember one time I was at the arcade, and there was these older guys playing it. And by older, I mean maybe like two or three years older than me. You know, me might have even been a couple of years younger than me. But they were playing Star Castle, and they were acting like, you know, they were hot ass on a stick. here. And I just waited until they stopped playing the game, and they moved on, and I just got on that game... And I beat their high score by at least six or seven thousand points, <laughs> you know, just because. Because I've never liked guys who thought they were hot s on a stick when they're really not. And yeah, even it will, even if it was just for my peace of mind, yeah, I showed them up a little bit. So yeah. Anyway, that's Star Castle. <laughs> oh man. Uh, any thoughts, comments, questions? You have any? T- tips and tricks of your own for Star Castle, just get a hold of me. Arcade at gmail.com. Okay, folks, so let's get behind the wheel, let's get in the passenger seat, let's buckle up, let's go on the road. <music> Hey folks, Brian here. And this is another segment of On The Road. Something that happened to me yesterday that really boggled me that I couldn't quite wrap my head around until I talked to someone about it later on. Um, as a matter of fact, yeah, it was my girlfriend I talked to about it. Um, okay, oh full disclosure, you know, I work for a medical laboratory as a courier. Um, I have a route where I basically have to go uh, around to pick up from labs three times a day. On Mondays is my long day because several of the clinics I pick up from do not close until 7 o'clock. So on my last run, I'll have some time to just chill out and relax, read a book, take a nap if I want to, that kind of thing. Um, Well, yesterday, which was Monday, um, it was so hot that I just couldn't see myself sitting in a parking lot just chilling out. And I certainly didn't want to just stay in my car and leave the engine running and leave the AC running because fuel was getting to be a bit of an issue towards the end. So I said, I thought to myself and I just said, well, I'll just go over to a, this one bowling alley that I know of that I've always wanted to check out that I always drove by at one of my previous jobs. So I figure I'll just go in there, see what's going on you know see if they've got anything to play if not I could just get a soda and just sit down at a table and just chill until it's time for me to drive back to the clinic and start my last run of the night so I went to the bowling alley it's a, it's a cool little spot you know actually the bowling alley is set into the ground which I thought was interesting it was like on this uh little hill and most of it was actually like set into the ground which i would think helps out with air conditioning costs um yeah nice little bowling alley had like what 12 pool tables i think um i thought about playing some pool but then i said let me see what else they got most bowling alleys they'll have one or two video games in there i could probably just play a game or two you know have a little fun. So I walk around the corner and sure enough they've got a Hyper Ms. Pac-Man in there. And I look at the high score. The high score is only 120,000. I'm like, "Oh, I could beat this easy." And so I went to the desk, you know, got change for a dollar, and I throw in once again their machine is 50 cents, which really irks me, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I get it, whatever. So I throw in two quarters and I start playing. And that, I don't know what it, it's a combination of two things. But the first thing is, is that this Ms. Pac-Man must've been set on a real low difficulty level because I found myself screwing up left and right, just trapping myself. I mean, when you play a Hyper Miss Pac-Man, that's the one thing you need to watch out for is not to trap yourself, which means, you know, the ghosts, of course, are going to try to set you up, but they're at a severe disadvantage because they are just so much slower than a Hyper Miss Pac-Man. You can basically just use your speed to outrun them you know, and get away from them if you need to. And most traps are not... Uh, are kind of easy to get away from. But this one, I mean, I trapped myself twice before I even reached the Peach stage, which is the third level. Which is really weird. And needless to say, I only got 60,000 both times actually right around 60,000 and it was missing the turns in the maze, um, trapping myself. Like I said, you know, it was just like, I could see it coming, but it's like at the point at that point when I trap myself, I see it coming, but I'm already committed to this path and there's no getting out of it. Any kind of, uh, turn I could make, to get out of it I'd already gone by and the ghosts have already gone by it in pursuit of me and by that time I trap myself and I lose a life. Okay I'm back at the laboratory so I will be back in a moment. Okay I'm back. So yeah it really really puzzled me that I could only get 60,000 on a Hyper Ms. Pac-Man when... Also, I went to Pinball Pete's the night before and played uh, their Hyper Ms. Pac-Man on a rather beat-up 25th anniversary Ms. Pac-Man Galaga machine, and still got two hundred thousand. And you know, it it just I just couldn't wrap my mind around it that entire night, and. It wasn't until my girlfriend called me while I was still on the road and I was talking to her about it and, you know, the solution got... The solution uh, sort of hit me. You know, it sort of just smacked me up up uh, upside the head to where I was like, oh, duh, no wonder. Um, it just seems that I wasn't in the correct headspace. When... I think about it, yeah. When I think about it, I get into particular headspaces when it comes to certain things. Like when it's just me, you know, just doing my normal things and just being who I am, that's one mindset. When I leave to go to work, and by the time I get there and from the moment I clock in, I'm in a different mindset. And, you know, when I go to an arcade, you know, and I've got nothing else going on in my mind, it's a, a different mindset uh, again. So I just realized that, you know, I can't play games with any sort of real effectiveness if I'm in my work slash get my job done mindset because that's where my focus is. And apparently, as I get older, apparently it's not so easy to switch focuses that easily. I think when I was younger, it was a different story because I remember when I worked for public supermarkets on the, oh goodness, on the northeast side of Melbourne, Florida. Um, I remember, you know, getting, you know, getting a break, a half hour break, and there was a bar next door to the supermarket, and they had an asteroids machine in there, and I would go in there, you know, play one or two games of asteroids, you know, put up a decent score of like, 60,000 70,000 something like that and then just go back to work and finish my job and now that I'm you know 50 years old I'll be 51 later this year apparently it's kind of more difficult to kind of be kind of go into a different mindset on demand so to speak it's just weird. It's so one of those things you find find out about yourself when you're getting older. It's just kind of strange. It still kind of messes with me a little bit. I'm like, how could I do so badly at Ms. Pac-Man when I've been playing the game ever since it came out in 1981, and... Of course you have a massive advantage with a hyperspeed Ms. Pac-Man. But yeah, that's the thing about playing hyperspeed Ms. Pac-Man, I've said it before, is that it's one of those things where you kinda have to think two seconds ahead of where you are at all times, at least two. Probably five when you're playing hyperspeed because You basically have to keep an eye on the ghosts and where they're going and what they're doing and whether or not they're just going to their quadrants of the maze. And then once they do their little reversal bit, then they all start coming after you. Well, with the exception of Sue, of course, who is, like, completely random. I mean, when I think about it, there were moments in... Uh, the games I was playing at the bowling alley where I used Sue's randomness to my advantage because there were times where I basically was going to spots in the maze and the ghosts had cut off all other avenues of escape except for one and Sue was coming on that one but because sue is random and she'll just as likely turn away from you and go in another direction as turn towards you and kill you in such a situation and there were at least two or three situations where i used that to my advantage in the game and was able to keep my game going so yeah it's just just an observation i made about myself and a little bit disturbing, (laughs) you know, but then again, it's just getting older, you know, your mental focus,
1: you know, it isn't
0: what it once was, especially as a gamer when you're in your 50s, but it also can be compensated for by experience, you know, I mean, I talk about it in the previous on the road segment I did when I was talking about playing that one guy in Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition and beating him five times in a row because I have such a deep knowledge of my favorite character to use, which is Sagat. And I know his reach. I know what he's capable of damage-wise. I know what he's capable of in terms of combos and things like that, that, like I said, there were points in, the, in each one of those fights where my opponent was making mistakes and rather large ones, and I couldn't quite get to a place where I could punish him for it. Um, but the thing is, is that the way I use Sagat is defensively, almost I'd say if you're going to use uh, some sort of percentage split, I'd say it's like 70 to 30 angling towards a defensive fighting style, you know? And the thing is, when people use, like, the Uppercut brothers, as they're known, which are Ryu and Ken, and Sagat is in that brotherhood as well, (laughs) but when you use Ryu and Ken against Sagat, you know it's like I said you have to use his reach to his advantage and that's what I did but yeah it's like I said I could have ended some of those fights a lot faster if I had been a little bit more on on my game that night as it is you know I still beat the guy five times in a row you know and I'm not bragging or boasting about it but you know yeah it does feel good you know on, on the one hand it's good to have some friendly competition like I said in, you know before but on the other hand it was nice to know that yeah I still got it <laughs> I could still you know beat people using sagat the way that I've always used him and you know it just it it's a good thing that you know things still work that way so anyway um so yeah I mean it's just a little bit bothersome to me that I could I was you know I was still in my I need you know I'm in my work mode if you will and I couldn't quite get myself out of it long enough to you know play and enjoy you know a game on my break which is that bothers me a little bit I'll be completely honest about it but at the same time it's like you know it is what it is you know, build a bridge and get over it. (laughs) So anyway, that's about all I've got for this segment of On the Road. And I'll see you guys in this segment at a future time. So until then, this is Brian saying good gaming. Have fun out there. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.